Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jenny Kaplan, co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I'm so excited to bring back our flagship show, Women Belong in the House. Last season, we talked about the record number of women who ran for Congress in 2018. We talked about why there were so few women in office to begin with, and established just how important it is to have people in Congress who represent the diversity of its constituents. This time, we're talking about the women who won elected office and have been serving as many of our representatives as freshmen or veterans of Congress. We'll talk about how previous work experience compares to life in the Capitol, what it's like to actually get to work and climb internal hierarchies, how it feels to be part of a diverse coalition, and why it's so hard and necessary to work across the aisle. 101 women currently serve in the House of Representatives. That's a record. Still, that means women make up just 23.2% of the governing body. This season, we're looking at what it's like to serve in a place that wasn't built for you. Let's start at the beginning. My God! Tuesday brought celebrations across the U.S. for the record-breaking number of women who made history with their victories. Washington is about to get a lot more female. The midterm elections saw a record number of women winning seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. A record number of women will be sworn into Congress next month. I spoke with Representative Katherine Clark for Massachusetts' 5th District about what it felt like to see all those victories. Katherine has served in Congress since 2013. I had worked as the co-chair of recruiting and of the Red to Blue program, which is the Democrats' program for, um, for flipping seats in, that are held by Republican members of Congress. And we had the most incredible candidates, and especially our women candidates, who just had marched in the Women's March, had never particularly seen themselves as politicians or as members of Congress, but really felt that call to service. And to see the country um, put so many of them into office was truly um, the hopeful sign that I, I needed, and I think so many American needed, needed that our, our country is still there, and we still have a vision where opportunity can be unlimited and can be open to all. And every time I look around the House chamber and see those candidates who are now such outstanding members of Congress, it, it's still just really incredible pride and gratitude uh, to voters around the country. I want to acknowledge early that these gains only happened on one side of the aisle. 
the number of Republican women in the House actually declined. We'll talk about that more in future episodes. For now, let's focus on the Democratic side of things. So for the women who won, what happens next? Well, there was really no next day after the election because I was up until about 3 a.m. doing interviews back to Europe. If you listened to season one, you may recognize that voice. That's Angie Craig. Angie now represents Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District. You know, you you run for a couple of years for a seat, and you, um, on election night, we were the 23rd race called in the country. So when they called my race, we knew not only had we finally won, but we'd also taken the House back. But there's no, there's no time to rest. You've, you've been running, you've been running, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you, you've got to assemble a team, you've got to show up within uh, days to new member orientation and figure out what the hell you're doing. So uh, there's uh, really no break between uh, running and, and winning and assembling that team and really getting going. Many of the women who won in 2018, including Angie, fought in hotly contested races. They didn't have the luxury of planning much beyond the election. Oh, my gosh. You know, I don't think you can plan past election night, and I certainly didn't, because if you plan past election night, you uh, start to make assumptions that, uh, in my experience, you shouldn't make. You know, uh, having run in 2016 and and lost my race by uh, just about 1.8 percentage points in 2018, The only plan uh, I made was to get my sons to the airport uh, the next morning to get them back to college. So uh, for me, it was really starting from, okay, I've got to put a team together. Uh, But having worked in business for over 20 years, uh, I was confident I could do that quickly. And so uh, very quickly, we assembled uh, our team. And I was fortunate my campaign manager from 2018 became My chief of staff, my field director from 2018, became my district director. They knew my constituents. They knew that uh, we had to focus on the issues that got us to Washington uh, as members of Congress. So building out uh, the rest of the team uh, was uh, a great experience. And, of course, really it's just figuring out what you don't know and how to navigate Washington. New members of Congress are called freshmen. And hearing about the early experiences on the Hill reminded me a whole lot of another kind of orientation, college. Well, I remember what it felt like to walk onto the House floor for the first time. And in fact, uh, it was during new new member orientation. They took us on a tour and there were so many of us. My my wife, Cheryl, was with me. And just as I stepped over the threshold uh, uh, onto the house floor, my wife said, hey, and I turned around and she snapped a photo of me. So I literally have the photo from the moment that I first stepped onto the house floor. And, you know, the truth is, it's a a little bit uh, like being a freshman back in college, because all of you show up together, uh, you know, when you have a freshman class as large as we had, over 80 members, if you count Republicans and Democrats. And you're all just trying to figure out, you know, where, where's your office going to be? Um, you know, what staff are you putting together? Uh, and the truth is, I spent a lot of the early days just building relationships with colleagues who uh, would ultimately be my partners in putting legislation together. Here's another familiar voice from season one. Representative Abigail Spanberger now serves Virginia's 7th District. 
a district that hadn't gone blue since 1963. So the day after the election, it was it, it was a whole different kind of uh, array of surprises that presented themselves. So you go through this whole process of campaigning, 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 and then you win. And then immediately, it's a complete and immediate pivot to having to uh, create uh, an official office, a congressional office. And so uh, we, they start sending you all of this paperwork and all of this information and how are you going to choose a room in the room lottery and when are you coming to Washington so they can give you all of the orientation. And, uh, you know, it was just a, it was a, it was a total flip and a total blur, actually. I guess it was in December during orientation. It might, might have been a little bit before that. Um, you actually draw a, a number in the lottery, like you go up one at a time and you pick your number and that is the order in which you get to select your room. And so everybody's crowded in this one big room and there's somebody like up on the dais and you go up and you pick your name or your number out of this box. And people were doing like bringing up items for good luck. People, a couple of people did like cartwheels on their way up. It was all lots of antics um, and pick their numbers. And then you choose your office in the order in which you, you know, in the, based on the number that you drew. So you draw your number, you know where you fall in the lineup, and then they say, here are the open offices, go. And so there's all these new members running around the office buildings, checking out offices, trying to make their lists of what it is that they want in an office, because we had, I think it was two hours to scope out offices, and then you had to come back, and they started calling in the lottery. It was fun. It was actually very, very fun. And people were cheering. And when people actually, this was a funny thing, when people would get uh, really high numbers, so, you know, you wanted to get a lower number, really high number, everyone was cheering, you're still in Congress, it's okay. Moving into offices is just the start of the action. Well, so there's swearing in day, which was, um, it was, it was just an amazing day. We uh, you get your room keys. So we were sworn in on the third. We got our office keys on the second. So you have this big flurry of activity getting yourself moved into an office. And then we had an open house, uh, which many members do. We had an open house on uh, swearing-in day. Now, I'm close enough to D.C. that we had a lot of constituents come up for the open house. And so it was packed in the halls and packed in the offices. It was pretty amazing. Um, and then swearing in everyone goes over we go to the floor uh we get sworn in we vote for the speaker uh and um you're allowed to bring kids on the floor so i brought my three daughters with me and there's all these folks who had kids or grandkids with them so the floor is just crowded and a bit chaotic and um it was it was it was pretty amazing and uh, and then from there, it was just a flurry of activity. You you all of a sudden you're sworn in and then you pivot towards now. What are we working on? And uh, and that's when, you know, I had set forth pretty clear priorities along the campaign trail. And we got right to work on issues related to prescription drugs and uh, campaign finance reform and broadband Internet. And uh, and we just dove right in. The freshmen were thrown into the deep end, still like college freshmen. They also had to get used to operational realities, like the way Congress's schedule works. Scheduling perspective, Congress is a bit of a nightmare. Uh, they always schedule, I mean, uh, different committees are always at the same time. People are jumping back and forth between the committees. There's, there's really no kind of operational organization to the committee structure, which uh, I think a lot of us who came in new this year just found to be really uh, comically shocking. 
but so once you just accept the fact that you're going to get your steps in running back and forth between committee hearings in and out, in and out, um, you know, that becomes a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of something that is a bit more understood. Now, that's not to say we're not trying to fix it. We've got a great committee called the Committee on the Modernization of Congress that's looking at some of these things that, you know, in the modern age when we do have committee hearings happening at such a, a rapid pace, is there a way to, that we can schedule so that people aren't constantly running back and forth? Is there a way that we can make this kind of more effective or efficient? You know, they'll say, we've got votes today at three o'clock and three o'clock comes and goes and you're still waiting for the votes to get called. And so there's certainly some efficiencies in the way Congress runs, uh, which may not surprise some of your listeners, but I mean from a scheduling perspective. Unlike those in college, these freshmen are charged with work that has an enormous impact on the lives of people throughout the country and around the world. For the freshmen of the 116th Congress, the weight of their work was immediately apparent. More on that after the break. This episode of Women Belong in the House is brought to you by the College of Urban and Public Affairs at Portland State University. The College of Urban and Public Affairs at Portland State University was built on the shoulders of groundbreaking women, including Norma Paulus, Barbara Roberts, and Vera Katz. These women cleared the path for the women now making waves in Oregon politics and beyond, including those we profile on Women Belong in the House. The next generation of leaders is being trained to plan and manage communities, cities, and policies, with graduates going on to strengthen their communities. Located in the Portland metro region, the College of Urban and Public Affairs acts as a proving ground where students and faculty partner with community organizations, develop original solutions, and implement them in real time to help others succeed through deep civic engagement. You can learn more about the ways the College of Urban and Public Affairs at Portland State University fights for equity and representation at cupa.pdx.edu house. That's cupa.pdx.edu house. In case you've forgotten, the 116th Congress was sworn in during a time of turmoil. December 11th, a possible government shutdown becomes a reality when President Trump meets with Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and then incoming House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck. I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. I'm not going to blame you for it. Washington begins its government shutdown. Funding for several key federal agencies just expired. More than 400,000 federal workers are now expected to work without pay, while lawmakers head back to the drawing board tomorrow. It, it was such an extraordinary time because even, even personally, I, I, I'm a former federal employee myself. That's Abigail Spanberger again. In case you missed this in season one, She's a former CIA agent. I represent so many federal employees. So the personal struggles, I mean, we had food banks for federal employees in my district. And so there's a, a moment of excitement that you're supposed to feel about getting sworn into Congress. But at the same time, literally, while that is happening, I have constituents who were not getting paid, expected to go to work. Um, and, and it was such a time of, an, an, of uneasiness. A really low point is literally working at... At the, there's a there was a special drive-through line at our large food bank for federal employees, and literally two or three weeks into being sworn in, I'm there. Well, it might have been the first week, um, but right after being sworn in, 
I'm at this food bank working the drive through line and I'm giving food to federal employees and, and, and feeling really just disappointed that here I am unable to fix this problem. Um, and, and to be clear, I was doing everything possible to fix the problem. I was in meetings that were beginning at 10 o'clock at night with bipartisan groups saying, how do we end this? How do we, how do we get this to stop? I went to the White House um, with a group of, uh, you know, fewer than 10 of us, half Democrats, half Republicans, to say, how do we get this to stop? I mean, I, I was doing everything I could. Um, but looking people in the face who said, like, oh, like, thank you for helping us as I'm handing them food, you know, it was... That, that's a low point to see people who are, you know, who, who are suffering in that way. Um, and, and because of what I consider to be a, a shameful abdication of responsibility um, on the, the part of, you know, again, I wasn't there when the shutdown started and thankfully I was there when it ended. But, you know, government shutdowns are, are theatrical antics that only hurt the American people. And so... I think that you know, standing and standing there handing out food was probably easily one of the lowest points. When I just said, you know, we're we are better than this. This this is not. This is never appropriate. It's essential to identify allies to actually get legislation in play. Forming those alliances can be challenging. I think one of the most surprising things for me was that Congress really is 435 individual mini businesses um, or some people would say like contract employees. And so there's, there are all of these people working on all of these different things. And so to find the folks who are working on the same things that that you're working on, it it sometimes takes a little bit of work. It's not very, uh, you know, everybody's kind of got their hands in all these different buckets and you don't necessarily know what it is. The system for signaling legislative priorities on the House floor is remarkably old school. They have what are called floor cards, which are um, <laughs> these thin pieces of paper that fit perfectly in the inside suit pocket uh, of a man's suit jacket. Right, that's what they were how they were designed to be, uh, and they're called the, the the floor cards. And so these long, skinny little pieces of paper that you hand out and you give the details of what your bills are and what you're working on. And so, you know, on on any given day, you've got folks working their way around the floor and um, handing out floor cards, trying to gather support for, uh, you know, whatever their priority is at that moment. Those cards are just one of many indicators that the way Congress works was not designed with women in mind. There wasn't a women's bathroom off of the House floor until 2011. I spoke with Kelly Dittmar, assistant professor of political science at Rutgers Camden and a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers about gender and the institution. So in thinking about how this institution was literally built uh, for and by men. So one is having uh, a women's restroom off of the house uh, and one they didn't have to share with tourists down the hallway, you know, and much further from the business that they were were doing on the floor. Um, Again, it's simply because those who built this institution didn't presume that women would be members. Right. Yes, they might come and visit, but they're not going to be the folks who need a restroom. Um, I use that example. It's not necessarily the most important right impact of having women there, but it does demonstrate the really sort of stubbornness of institutions that were built without women in mind. Congresswomen are also fighting preconceived notions about who sits in office. When people generally picture a representative, they tend to picture a man. 
even people working in the House fall victim to that prejudice. Here's Representative Catherine Clark again. When I first came into Congress, I would often get stopped um, going onto the floor, uh, and people would say uh, to me, even though I was wearing my congressional pin and I was a member of Congress, they would say, we're sorry spouses are not allowed on the floor of Congress. And I would sort of be startled and say, well, I'm a member. And, you know, um, it would quickly resolve. But, you know, I don't think there's ever been, I'm sure my husband could walk onto the floor with his spouse pin and not be stopped. Freshmen in 2018 reported being similarly stopped. Congress is changing, but progress is fighting against centuries-old norms. There are many reasons why it's important for Congress to be more representative. It's vital to have multiple perspectives and to better understand the needs of constituents. Research shows that when women are in office, Congress pays more attention to different kinds of issues. Here's Kelly Dittmar again. Kelly co-authored a book called A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Representation Matters. For that book, Kelly and her colleagues interviewed 83 congresswomen from the 114th Congress. So women would talk to us about bringing different perspective and lived experiences to conversations not only about quote-unquote women's issues, but all sorts of issues like criminal justice reform uh, or uh, economic issues um, that they would be sure to bring to that their own lived experiences, which are just different than men's. And then I think one of the pieces that I'm most proud that we were able to highlight are the ways in which they changed the institution itself. Um, and there, you know, they talked about pushing back against silly rules that, you know, women couldn't use the pool because the men wanted to swim in the pool naked, like really ridiculous rules that had been established in this really uh, male-dominated institution for so long, or changing dress codes so that women didn't have to wear, you know, sleeves on the floor. Um, things like that are disrupting the overall gender norms of the institution. But then some of it's obviously much more nuanced. So making sure that they push for policies within their own offices that accounted for uh, new mothers and um, changing that in all parts of governmental institutions so that there were lactation rooms. Um, these are all just examples, but places where their presence not only changes legislative outcomes, but also changes the process and experience of many people within these institutions so that they're more inclusive and welcoming of not just women, but other people who've been excluded from this place and these places for so long. I asked Representative Catherine Clark if it feels different to work in the House now than it did prior to the 2018 election. It does. It is incredible to serve in uh, the House of Representatives with the Democratic Caucus. I look around and to see all these women, to see people of um, not only women, but people of different races, ethnicity, religions, um, all coming uh, together in this caucus that is like any large family. We don't agree on everything, but we are really united in our purpose and for our shared values. And, you know, I, I, the the scene, um, you know, with all of us wearing white 
um, and just saying we are women, we are here, um, has been not only played out at the State of the Union and other, you know, big televised events, but just every day um, in hearings when I hear these women bringing up issues um, that can be incredibly detailed and policy-oriented, but just bringing the perspective that was missing. And as we look around our hearing rooms, they are often, um, we are surrounded by very large portraits of former chairmen um, who are usually white men. And then you look at who are sitting in those seats on those committees. And it is a group of members of Congress that look like Americans. And that to me is the embodiment of what representational government should be. And it makes us a stronger democracy. And, you know, we also have a lot of um, fun with each other. Uh, women just, you know, when we're there in larger numbers, um, you know, we, we are, we're laughing the other day that you can tell when certain dresses go on sale because I was wearing one and Katie Porter owns the same dress and another member owned the same dress. And so we were talking about how we were going to have to rotate the days that we uh, wear our identical dress. The women serving in the House of Representatives come from diverse geographical, ethnic, and career backgrounds. They bring those experiences with them to committee meetings and hearings, where those voices were previously absent. Having more women in office also means there's more institutional knowledge of how to deal with the kind of challenge women face across professions, the so-called balance of work and familial responsibilities. Here's Kelly Dittmar again. One of the women members we spoke with um, you know, in the middle of the interview was saying, you know, today my son is dealing with, I forget, a paper, an application he needs to do, and I'm feeling really guilty that I'm not there. Um, and it, of course men are going to have those experiences, and I think increasingly so as we see some shifts in gender roles in, in society more broadly. But, you know, what she was saying was like, I feel this guilt, and sometimes I feel like I can't say it. Because too often, historically, um, that has been used against women to say, you can't possibly do both of these jobs well at the same time. And so the more women that are in office, that have young kids, that are working through that and, you know, doing great jobs and also being willing to talk about the challenges openly, you know, that, yeah, this is hard. Um, but we're doing it and it's important for our kids to see us in these leadership roles. I think that's where you start to change the institution and create a place that for the women coming in, they may say, okay, we understand this is going to be a challenge, but look, these women are doing it. They're figuring it out and they're going to be there to help me when I need to talk through it or need some advice. Uh, hopefully that makes for a more welcoming institution. One of the great examples from this cycle might be, you know, somebody like Katie Porter who not only talks openly about that challenge, but also, um, you know, celebrates the fact that she is a mother of young kids and that's the perspective she's bringing to policymaking. She's in Congress uh, fighting for, for example, a change in the policy formally that you can use your campaign funds for childcare, something that hopefully opens the door to more people running, including more women with young kids. 
Um, and so she's really flipping what can be seen as a distinct challenge for women and saying, let's figure out a way to be sure that this is an asset to the institution, um, that we make clear what we bring to the table because of this distinct experience. Um, it's not so much a burden, right? It's something that is a value added. Representative Catherine Clark was able to serve as an example to Representative Abigail Spanberger. Here's Catherine. I was going to do uh, a fundraising event here in Massachusetts for um, Abigail Spanberger, and uh, I found out that it conflicted with uh, a, my son's um, sporting tournament. And this is going to be the only tournament I'm able to make uh, this fall. And so I called her and said I wasn't going to be able to do it. And she called me back and said, thank you for giving me permission to also choose my family when I have to over the many requirements of this job. And I think that's an unusual relationship that women have, that we give ourselves support and permission to be moms and to be um, members of Congress that are completely committed to this job. And we help each other find ways to do that. And that is really a special bond that the women of Congress have with each other. These women are serving at a historic time. They're voting on matters that could change the course of our country. They're doing such big work. And yet, some of the day-to-day -day struggles feel quite familiar. Freshmen have to figure out things like where they're going to sit. Scheduling is annoying. Finding work friends and allies is both necessary and sometimes difficult. Having fought for and won a huge new promotion, representatives can flex their expertise, yet still have to weigh when to put family responsibilities first. Here's Katherine Clark again. I think the more that Americans see women in the House of Representatives who are, you know, experts in national security, really understand the financial services industry, are advocates for um, climate change and understand the uh, oil and gas industry as well as the renewable energy industry. Um, they begin to understand that when you elect women, you not only are bringing along the majority of the population of the United States, but you're bringing truly um, standout women in their careers in their own right and the perspective as, um, as moms, as grandmothers, as um, those who are caretakers like I have been for the last several years of both our elderly parents and children. And, you know, I am very fortunate to have a family that supported me through that and to have the resources to be able to, to work and help my parents. Um, but those experiences are important. And to have to, um, you know, I get to work in Washington with lots of supports for that. But there are many, many women across this country who are working two or three jobs and caring for children and caring for elderly parents and may not have the insurance coverage that they need and don't have childcare that they can afford. 
And knowing those stories, knowing what it's like uh, to be the only woman in the room uh, when you go to work, uh, to be the woman who is always the last to pick up your children at childcare. Those are important perspectives to bring to the table at Congress and to have women at the table, at the leadership table, with those perspectives and experiences makes a difference. Uh, I don't think it is a coincidence that the bill on pay equity has been in front of Congress for over a decade, but it was this Congress with our record number of women that passed it um, in the first few months of this majority. And that's having record number of women in those seats and casting those votes and reprioritizing the agenda in Congress to meet the needs of women and children. The women in the House bring to the table not just their lived experiences as women, but a vast array of prior professional expertise. They hail from the public and private sectors and worked in a huge array of fields. The pressure is on to get things done. They're basically on a two-year trial period before they could get kicked out of office. So how do representatives use their past experiences to address the priorities and promises they highlighted during election season? Next time on Women Belong in the House, we're talking about just that. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to Louisa Garbowit. Original theme music by Miles Moran. Also, for those of you who've been following from the beginning, some exciting news. Last week on Super Tuesday, my mom, Kathy Manning, won her primary in North Carolina's new 6th District. To stay up to date with everything happening at Wonder Media Network, follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. You can also follow me directly on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. Talk to you next week.